You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Thank you all for coming. Uh, we are uh, excited to have you here. I'm Mark Alpovich. I'm the um, Director of European Studies. Um, and uh, we're excited to have uh, my colleague Eileen Tripp here. Uh, I have a biography of Eileen, which is incredibly long because Eileen has literally written everything, done everything, won every award there is to win in uh, political science and, and beyond. Um, but I'm just going to read a few of the highlights because uh, I promised me I would uh, not read the whole thing. Uh, so Ivy is Violet's Research Professor of Political Science uh, here at UW-Madison. Her research has focused on gender, women, and politics, women's movements in Africa, transnational feminism, women in post-conflict and authoritarian contexts globally. Uh, she is the author of several award-winning books, including Seeking Legitimacy, Why Arab Autocracies Adopt Women's Rights, and Women in Power in Post-Conflict Africa. Uh, she has been the president of the African Studies Association and vice president of the American Political Science Association. She currently is one of the editors of the American Political Science Review, uh, which is the flagship journal uh, in political science, um, and uh, is one of the foremost scholars on women in politics. So uh, we are excited to have her here uh, because she is also uh, now a Europeanist. She is uh, going to talk to us about war, revolution, and the expansion of women's political citizenship in Finland. Um, she's going to talk for about 30 minutes or so, and then hopefully we'll have a uh, discussion and Q&A afterwards. Okay. So thank you. Thank you very much. So, well, you might wonder, <laughs> what is an African politics scholar doing talking about uh, Europe? Um, and. Uh, I'll be you know, explaining why, how Finland came to be the first country in Europe where women got the right to vote, and also first country in the world to seat women in parliament. But you may know that, some of you may know that I'm a, a Finnish, um, but that's not the reason why I'm talking about Finland today. So and you'll, I'll explain, that's a small part of the explanation. So the explanation it began when I wrote this book in 2015 on why countries that had experienced major conflict in Africa um, ended up making greater gender-related reforms and promoting more women in leadership than countries that had not gone through major conflict. Um, and they were also passing more legislation around women's rights, making more constitutional reforms, um, dramatically more, not just a little bit more. <laughs> and so, um, and, and, and I argue in the book that it had to do with uh, some of the changing um, changes that took place in the political elite, new leaders came into power and opened up new spaces. Um, there was also new opportunity structures after conflict, so uh, peace accords, um, constitution-making exercises, uh, electoral reforms, uh, legislative reforms, and all of these opened up possibilities and opportunities for the women's movement to push through various reforms. Uh, it also happened in the um, in the context of uh, changing international norms, especially in the mid-1990s. The, the conflicts I'm looking at in this book um, were mostly after 1990 and especially after 2000. They, about 17 major conflicts came to an end in Africa, and this is this, is this opening that, that occurred, um, allowing for women's movements to then push for these various changes as a result of these, these um, changing opportunity structures. And, and at the same time, there were, the backdrop was uh, changing international norms, 
especially after 1995, there was a conference in Beijing, UN Conference on Women, where um, there was a big push to get women into, into leadership positions. So, and just to show you one example, but you had very, very big increases in women's representation by almost 25, 24% in several uh, post-conflict countries and, and 17 to 20% in, in the, probably the majority of other countries, all within one election. I mean, from one moment to another, it changed, the, the picture changed really dramatically. And the face of African um, legislatures changed pretty much overnight in these countries. Um, in Rwanda, it was after um, conflict and after genocide in 1994, um, where you saw this big jump. And so today, Rwanda has the highest rate of representation of women in the legislature at uh, 63%, or sorry, 61%. And the, they have 55% women in the cabinet. So it's not just also in the legislature. You see this pattern in, in other arenas as well. So what's this got to do with <laughs> today's talk? Well. Uh, it's, um, I started you know, thinking about, you know, because it, it wasn't just in Africa, you saw this also in East Timor, you saw it in Nicaragua, you saw this in, um, in uh, Slovenia, you saw this in, in, different, in different parts of the world, you saw this kind of post-conflict bump in, in representation of women. Yeah, Nepal was another country. So then I began to think, well, is this, is this something more generalizable beyond just this time period that I had been looking at? And that's, where, that's what then took me <laughs> to other parts of the world. And so, um, and, and so if you look at, for example, around the issue of suffrage, um, the, there are these existing explanations that are out there um, that link it, the, the adoption of giving, giving women the right to vote, they link it to women, women's movements, feminist movements, they link it sometimes to party alliances, by so, uh, especially by um, socialist and liberal parties. They've also linked it to, uh, in countries like New Zealand, um, Iceland, Norway, Poland, Hungary, to nationalist struggles for independence. Uh, Finland would go in that category as well. They've also linked it to uh, a push for democracy after uh, many countries became independent after World War II. They've also linked it to a diffusion um, of world culture um, uh, and uh, the kind of the spread of women's suffrage came as a result of countries copying other countries. Um, there are a few people who focused on the impact of World War I in individual countries, and, and um, this connection never really got traction, and beca uh, partly because there was a pushback against that argument by people who said, no, no, you should really focus on the role of women's movements and feminist movements. Uh, and so, and so I'm, but I'm taking another look at that, and I'm actually beginning trying to connect some of the, the dots um, uh, with many different kinds of conflicts. Different, different conflicts. And I'm not going to argue that, that this is the only way that women have expanded their political citizenship, but it's one way and it's a major way that we see um, women's, um, women's rights expanding. Um, it's a silver lining. It's not something you would ever, of course, advocate for, um, but it's something that has happened. And so my, this is uh, kind of ended up with this, starting with this hypothesis here that women's political rights and their exercise of political citizenship globally have expanded in the aftermath of conflict um, very, very often. Um, it's, and also it, the issue of suffrage uh, um, is very much linked to the end of empire starting in the uh, 20th century. 
And, and my argument is that this has to do with uh, changes that took place, have taken place within the political elite, especially with the end of empire. You have new people coming into power, new nations forming. Uh, you also have, um, you, it's also happened where you have had women's movements that have been active and where there have been changes in international norms around uh, women's political citizenship. So this is kind of where I'm starting. <laughs> uh, and uh, what, I'm, what I'm doing in this project is really connecting um, I have several cases I'm looking at, so Finland is one of them. So I'm very eager to get your feedback on this particular case that I wanted to present in European Studies uh, and Krika, just because I wanted to get some, oh, why is it moving? <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Stop, stop. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Well, just use your imagination. <laughs> moving dots. Okay. Um, but I want to connect these dots. So I have Finland as one case. I also have, um, I'm in the middle of this project. So again, that's another reason why I want feedback on this, or, or would like to have feedback rather. Um, uh, I've done, uh, uh, I had one person working in Finland, one person working in Turkey who reads Ottoman and looked at the, the, the creation of Turkey in relationship to women's citizenship. Um, Tunisia, I have somebody just starting now in Tunisia. I have somebody starting in Switzerland. Um, but my cases are Finland, Turkey, Tunisia, Mozambique, and Uganda, and I'll explain in a minute why these countries. Um, Switzerland is my kind of negative case. It's a country where, that where <laughs> women didn't get the right to vote until 1971, and it's also a country where, you know, one of the cantons, it wasn't until 1991, so it was very late. But they also didn't have any conflict, and, and, uh, <laughs> and they, you know, since the mid-1800s, and they hadn't had you know, it's a country that's very conservative, and, and not, there was nothing to shake up the society in the way that we see in other parts of the world. Oh, I, get, I have to figure <laughs> out, by <laughs> the time I stop talking, it'll be back to where we start. Yeah, here we go, Tunisia, and then Uganda, Mozambique, Turkey, and Finland. Okay, so there's my countries. Anyway, here you go. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so this is, so the Finland is just one of these cases, and um, so women, in, and I'm going to focus on the issue of suffrage or the right to vote for, for women. Um, women in many countries in Europe and North Africa had been pushing for suffrage um, as far back as the mid-1800s, but it wasn't until after World War I that we then saw women obtaining the right to vote. And within five years of World War I, women in 24 European and North American countries won the right to vote. Um, you also see the same thing happening um, after World War one with the breakup of large empires like the, the Ottoman, Russian, German, and Austro-Hungarian empires after World War I, um, sometimes followed by revolution or nationalist war. So you know, in Russia, you had Russian women won suffrage in 1917, um, but that was following the 1905 uh, Russo-Japanese um, Russo War, and then uh, Russia's involvement in World War I. Uh, then you have the same um, pattern in Germany. The end of World War I was followed by a revolution, and then the adoption of the Weimar Constitution, which granted women equality with men. In Turkey, you had the defeat of the Ottoman Empire um, in World War I, gave rise to revolutionaries who fought a nationalist war of independence, installed a Republican government in 1923, and um, a few years, not, not right away, but <clears throat> um, a few years later, they got, women got the right to vote, and it was a new civil code that was adopted. Um, the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire led to the creation of new nations, um, most of which granted women's suffrage almost immediately, um, Austria, Hungary, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. 
Then the next moment is the end of the decline, the end of World War II, after which you and the end of the British and the French empires, and that's you also saw the growth of independence movements, which gave rise to new nations, and then another wave of expansion of women's rights, um, but this time for both men and women. Um, and within five years of World War II, another 83 countries were granted, um, granted women the right to vote, and even more countries in subsequent years. Then the next one, my next case is, so, so I have, yeah, we've done Finland, Turkey, we've done, Tunisia is the case I'm looking at for the end of World War II. Then I have somebody who's been working in Portugal, she's now gonna start the Mozambique part of this. Um, but she's um, looked at the, you know, looking at the end of the Portuguese Empire, and and uh, how that um, then also gave rise to, and, and the effect that it had on the new nations in Africa, m many of which had been fighting for independence for quite some time: uh, Mozambique, Cape Verde, um, Angola, uh, Guinea-Bissau. Uh, so, you know, this is these are the these are the countries I'm looking at in addition to Finland. And in terms of methods, um, very briefly, um, uh, this is part of a book project that I'm working on, but I've already written two articles on Finland and I'm gonna talk about them both kind of combined today. Um, but I've been using primarily archival sources and my assistants have been kind of trying to find the, the, the you know, trying to locate them and then, um, especially in the case of the Ottoman and um, have been translating them for me as well. Um, and the Portuguese too, I don't read Portuguese. So, um, so we have you know, articles, reports, pamphlets written by Finnish suffragists. Um, in particular, I'm using one of the, a lot of diaries from this um, Pekla Hultin, who was, I'll talk about her in a minute, but one of the suffragists who was a journalist and, and wrote quite a, kept a very extensive diary of this period. And then I've used the uh, Gerritsen collection of Aleta Jacobs um, that has a lot on the, the Finnish, suffragists communicating to the international community, international suffragists about the activities that were going on in Finland, and also using, in this case, the National Archives of Finland and the National Library there. I'm using um, historical process tracing to explain some of the, the, these various factors and how they, they, they um, you know, how they come into the sto a story um, and link uh, the critical junctures of revolution and war um, to the advancement of women's citizenship. So critical junctures are these kind of key periods, like you can see here, where um, short periods of time which increase the, the probability that actors can intervene to bring about their, the changes that they want to see. And these windows of opportunity don't last forever, but they, you know, they're there, and they, these, uh, I'm arguing, led to uh, changes in the status of women. I'm also drawing from a crisis theory, which argues that um, crises like wars and economic depression are catalysts for radical social change and the transformation of the ideology of the status quo. I'm also looking at, as part of the process tracing, I'm looking at, look at, at cascading effects and the ways in which certain events trigger other events um, and, and form these kind of sequence of, of, um, of events. So in, in the case, of Finland, I'm looking at starting with the um, Russification of Finland in 1899 and its impact then, and then looking at the Russo-Japanese War, uh, which then um, helped precipitate the decline of the Russian Empire, and then the war um, led to the 1905 revolution in Russia, but also in, in Finland, which was part of Russia, and eventually led to the um, 
independence from Russia, but um, in between we get, we get the universal and equal suffrage, um, men and women. I'm also, um, you know, this, this pattern follows very much the observation of Charles Tilly and Beta Scotchpole that defeat in international wars is a prerequisite to revolution, and so you see that pattern quite clearly here as well. So the paper then uses these critical junctures to show, or these ruptures, um, that were a precursor to the expansion of women's rights, um, and I'm arguing that they occurred in conjunction with the shakeup of the political elite and the creation of more democratic institutions in Finland. This happened also in the context of Finland's bid for autonomy and, and ultimately independence from Russia, uh, and as a result of pressures from the women's movement. And these also, these, these ruptures took place within the context of changing international norms around women's right to vote. So just by way of background, uh, Finland was under Swedish control roughly from, it's, it's hard to know exactly, but let's say 13th century up until 1809 when the Russians defeated the Swedes. Uh, and then Finland became a Grand Duchy of Russia, um, where it, which it, it remained until independence from Russia in 1917. So to say a little bit more about these precipitating factors, uh, one was this cascade that began in 1899, uh, when Nicholas II, the Tsar, issued a manifesto which launched a series of repressive um, Russification initiatives. So Russia, for example, would determine um, Finland's legislation without the consent of the Finnish, um, they call it diet or the parliament. Um, the Russian language would replace Swedish as a language of administration. Russian would be taught in schools. Finnish army would be abolished and Finns were to be conscripted into the Russian army. And so this period was then called um, the period of oppression. Um, and uh, it forced all almost all Finns who had been somewhat divided along class lines and language lines to join together around what they perceived as a common enemy. And so you see this depicted in this um, painting by um, uh, Edvard Isto, um, which is you know, the, the attack. Uh, so up until this time, uh, the, the uh, women's movement had not prioritized suffrage. It wasn't it was, it was on their agenda, but it wasn't a big priority. Tax-paying women already had the right to vote in municipal and county districts as of 1863, and in towns in 19, 1872. But there wasn't any particular push to, you know, they weren't against it, but they weren't pushing for it. Um, partly because the nobility within, the, they, they had four estates, and the, the nobles, the nobility were afraid that it would give power to those who had property rights, and give more power to the fin Finnish language parties. But meanwhile, the Finnish, the Russian Empire is falling apart, and you have this this um, Russo-Japanese war going on, um, and in which Ru Russia was defeated. Um, Russia suffered enormous casualties; it lost its Pacific and and uh, Baltic fleets, along with its international stature, and it, this added to the impending sense of doom that the empire was falling apart. Um, as Matti uh, uh, Halleberg wrote at the time. Uh, in the Social Democratic Party uh, newspaper, Tuemias, the worker, um, the Russo-Japanese War was the most important factor leading up to the writing of the new constitution and formation of a new parliament. Quote, if it, had, if it hadn't been a war with Japan where Russia, quote, retreated in good order, 
Um, if the Russian people hadn't defeated their own bureaucracy there, and if the Finnish working people hadn't overthrown the uh, Barbrikovian, Barbrikov, Barbrikov was the governor, the Barbrikovian system, then our constitutionalists wouldn't have achieved anything. So you know, people saw this very, very sharp connection between the Russo-Japanese War and the new constitution that brought in this universal um, suffrage and equal suffrage. So then you have, as part of that, you have the 1905 revolution that took place in Russia, but then throughout Russia, and including uh, Finland. And you know, as you can see, just hundreds of thousands of people went out in the streets. Um, and uh, they had this, it, it's sometimes called a, a strike, but sometimes called a revolution, depending on how you want to think about it. But anyway, the whole country came to a standstill. Um, factories, schools, offices, railways, um, Ida Mulberry was a writer and leader of the um, Social Democratic Party, um, or actually it was known as the Finnish Labor Party at the time, and she describes the revolution as, um, quote, without words, um, without exclamation, it was clear to everybody that we now had arrived at a turning point. We should either gain everything or lose everything. There was nothing between these two extremes. It was impossible to be alone now because perhaps for the first time it became a living truth to everybody that we are all members of a great family responsible for each other. There were no strangers, no enemies, no upper class, no lower class anymore. We were brothers and sisters. Even the difference of age seems to have disappeared. Children were seized by the same spirit of enthusiasm as their parents. Who led it? Who arranged it all? Nobody. Uh, it was the spirit of the people who led it, who arranged it, who gave them the courage to meet death if needed. So four days then into this strike, uh, uh, the Tsar was uh, concerned, fear, fearful that this was the end of the empire. And so he very abruptly gave in to the demands of the strikers. He repealed the February Manifesto that had brought about this Russification, and he announced the formation of a new unicameral Finnish diet that allowed for universal adult suffrage. Uh, and as his um, historian, he just, um, Risto Alapuro, who I think he just died last year, he argues that this war had more impact on the introduction of universal suffrage and women's suffrage than the pressure from domestic forces. So here you again see the, the role of the international um, dimension of this. Uh, and thus, Finland became the, the, the first country in Europe in which women could vote and the first country in the world to seat women in the parliament. And this happened um, as Finland was now, trans at the same time, transitioned from an antiquated form of legislature, which involved, it was the last country to have these four estates, um, the nobles, the clergy, the burghers, and the peasants. And it became a unicameral, you know, one-chamber par parliament. And, it, and by adopting universal and equal suffrage, um, women then obviously also could, were able to not just vote, but they were also able to run for office. And so in the first elections in 1907, there were 19 women out of 200 that um, got the right to vote. And so Finland, like one fell swoop, went from becoming the, being the most backward parliament in Europe to being the most advanced. Um, and if you just want to get a sense of what this, what this meant to have all these women, most of them, they were not entirely all social democrats, but most of them were, mind of them were. Um, they were, we, we, U.S. didn't reach this 5% of the legislature until 1984, <laughs> 77 years later. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so just to give you a sense of, of, of uh, the, the difference. And here was the, the last session of the, of the um, diet 
the nobles diet. So the but, but the point here is that the, what, what happened here also was that it was a fundamental change in the elite structure. So you went from this, you know, these Atelisset, Papit, Porvarit, and Talonpoyat, you went to well, these four estates, this was the, 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 the nobles' estate, the Atelisset, and you went then to this electing people who then represented all classes, um, men and women from all classes, much more egalitarian. Um, if you look at the women, there were from seven teachers, three editors, a peasant, a textile worker, a wife of a minister, a, a pastor, and two other wives of workers, and the president of the servants' trade union. So it was a completely different class basis for the for the parliament, and completely different um, political elite, if you want to call it that, and a much more egalitarian one. <clears throat> so to go on with my story, <laughs> the women's movement um, played a role. Um, but um, I'm, I also argue that it's not just movements that make a difference, it's also people <laughs> and uh, individuals. And in this case, we're talking, um, I talk about the role of Tekla Hultin, who was, uh, played a very pivotal um, moment um, at the same time that there are these larger historical, structural uh, forces at play. And so I wrote a paper on the whole role of contingency um, and in, in revolution. and. Um, the, the way in which uh, women's rights was also a product of a series of discussions that were taking place at the same time. Tekla Hultin was a suffragist, she was a journalist, she had formed um, the Young Finns Party, she had, um, was a, and then she also was, just by coincidence, the secretary of, for Leo Mechelin, who was, um, had the position that's very complicated, but just let's just say the equivalent of a prime minister. This is now under, still uh, as Finland was a grand duchy under Russia. He was 25 years her senior, he was a distant uncle, he was a confidant. Um, uh, and, but she worked for him in, ver in various capacities. He was also had beca became the leading uh, advocate of political autonomy. They didn't even dare say the word independence, it was for a long time, it was just autonomy until the very end. Um, and, uh, and, or at least in this period that we're talking about, it was still you know, just more, more freedom from Russia. Um, he, so she was his a secretary in the Constituent Assembly that was formed to rewrite the Constitution, that reformed the Parliament. And she was also involved in the, the Diet, which the, the, the Parliament. Uh, and, but even more strangely, she was involved in absolutely every single thing that happened in this period that was of importance. So she was involved in the general strike, she was speaking out of that, you know, involved with that. She was involved with the Constituent Assembly, engaging all these different members of the Constituent Assembly. She was mem talking to pe people at Diet all the time, and she's constantly talking to Mechelene about a lot of things, but mostly about women getting the right to vote. Um, she was even present, this is what I find even weirder, is when the um, Russian governor was much hated, um, Bob Babrikov was assassinated by a Finnish nationalist, she was even there, I mean how did she get to be there? It was on the steps of the Senate, but she goes, she, as she described it, um, 1904, having just returned from a visit to those who have returned from exile to Stockholm, I happened to arrive at the Senate House where my office was located, and just the blink of an eye after Ergen Schaumann shots, shots rang out, and as a, you know, so maybe, you know, being a journalist, she had to write this all up, still, it's just, how do you, how does that happen? Anyway, at a very pivotal moment, 
in these ongoing discussions, she then had to persuade Mechelin because he, he, was, he wasn't sure about women getting the right to vote. He thought it's more important to get universal suffrage first than worry about the, he wasn't against it. He just wasn't thinking that this was a time for it. So she was, she was saying, no, no, this is the time. We have to do it now. And so she then persuaded Mechelin, who then went to the czar and, and told him that the Finnish people are demanding women's suffrage. And to everyone's surprise, you know, the czar was just, you know, anything to hold this empire together, <laughs> you know, quickly signed and said, sure, sure, whatever. Um, but um, she was very well aware of her role and wrote later that um, this relationship with Mechelin coincidentally placed her in the, quote, innermost circle center of creating the history of Finland. I don't know why it was like this, but that is what it was like, and it's been the greatest happiness of my life. She also talks about how it, you know, how this, how she was part of this bigger structural change that was going on. She says, quote, in a different place in her diary, it's well known that the political enfranchisement of the women of Finland was due to the spontaneous act of volition on the part of the Finnish people. It happened during the political strike of 1905 but it would not be correct to consider the Finnish women's political rights as a casual production of a sudden movement of people or of a revolution, as it's been called. The fact is that this reform was prepared long before. And so that then leads us to another question um, of why it was so relatively easy. To, I mean, it wasn't easy, but it was relatively easy to get this uh, suffrage. And, the, and one has to ask why, because it was the first country that, in Europe that did this. Uh, and you have to also ask why, because if you looked at other countries like Britain, I mean, or the U.S., uh, most of these struggles that, that had been leading up to the, the, you know, the first round of suffrage victories in Europe, they were as a result of very, very bitter struggles um, and an enormous pushback against women's rights activists. Um, and you only have to recall that, you know, what happened in England, for example, um, the kind of violence that was perpetrated against the British suffragists through pr police brutality, at demonstrations, um, imprisonment, force feeding of women who went on hunger strikes, and so on. And of course, the women too were engaged in violence. It wasn't just a one-way street. Um, they were involved in rowdy demonstrations and arson and window smashing campaigns um, and chaining themselves to railings. But this, the, 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 the struggle in Finland did not elicit such passions of violence. And you know, the same, although the same cannot be said for uh, the, the nationalist um, movement against Russian oppression, which was um, the broader context within which it emerged. But around the suffrage, no, it wasn't, it was not violent. And so, and, and, and also, it's not just that, it was, uh, there was very little resistance even when it, I mean, they did have to argue for it. It wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't an automatic yes. But when it came to a vote, there was very there was I think only two senators against it. I mean, and, and in, in the committee, and then in the Senate, there was one person who had been against it. So basically, it wasn't a, it, you know it went through once once it was on the table. And so to explain that, one has to then think about some of the broader the broader context within which this took place. And um, so I, I'll I see that our our time is going to run run out soon. But let me just you know go through quickly some of the. The, the factors, and then we can talk about them more later on. Um, one, one argument I would make is that Finland didn't have a, a, a feudal uh, system, uh, and uh, it was only be just beginning to industrialize along capitalist lines. And this had um, a, uh, implications for the public-private divide that you found in many other countries where you had a kind of a more liberal orientation. So um, some have argued that um, 
in agrarian societies like Finland, which you know didn't industrialize like till quite late, quite recently, there was um, a little division between these public-private spheres, um, between the home and employed labor, and um, women's labor. Women did pretty much what men did in terms of rural labor, um, and uh, not only within the home, but in t tending cattle, working the fields alongside men. Of course, they did took care of the children and did cooking, but that was what women did. But but outside of that, there was not such a big distinction in terms of um, the public-private roles of men and women. Uh, and uh, so, and then also, uh, girls had benefited from education alongside boys since the mid. 1880s, uh, so very early on they had this co-education, and this then meant that girl, women went into pretty much every field except uh, that men did. They were journalists, they were school principals, they were teachers, they were doctors, businesswomen. Uh, my grandmother was a businesswoman, <laughs> and uh, so they, they were, um, you know, they, they were very active except for three areas, uh, the clergy, law, and the military. Otherwise, they, there was not such a big distinction. Women were also very active in social movements. They were not just active, they were also uh, leaders of them, especially some of the, pi the pietist movements, um, religious revivalist movements, um, but they were in involved in temperance movement, youth movements, um, and uh, women were very active in the trade union movement um, and were very active in the Social Democratic Party, which um, really championed women's rights right from the beginning. You also had um, leaders like, um, uh, Mina Silampa, who was uh, the, one of the first women parliamentarians who had came out of the working class movement. She was a leader of the Social Democratic Party, um, had been active in the women's organization of the Social Democratic Party, and, uh, and the Social Democrats were really the party that really spearheaded, was very, worked very, very keen to, to see women's suffrage along with a lot of other um, concerns. So women were involved in, in the parties, and at a time when they were banned, women were banned from most European parties. Um, in Germany, women didn't participate in political parties until 1908, but in Finland, this had been they had been um, involved for a long time before then. And uh, the same thing with the trade unions; women were very active in the trade unions. Um, okay, and then let's see, go back here. You also then you also had this very strong communitarian ethos of participatory democracy. So you didn't have the kind of liberal ideology, which is often associated with suffrage. But in fact, liberalism has often been a, you know, much slower to to to, to adopt uh, egalitarian thinking. Um, and um, partly this has to do with you know some of the liberal thinkers that you find in Britain, for example, where. You know, women were perceived as being biologically weak, which made them that less less than men physically and mentally, and therefore they had to require the protection of men. And this then had become an obstacle for women's political empowerment. All of this kind of biological nonsense was, or biological determinism, was absent in the Finnish way of thinking, um, and uh, or in, and even in popular thinking, it was just it just wasn't there. And so you had this communitarian ideology that was quite strong that blended self-rule of the people with representation of people. So the rulers and the government governed were one and the same, and they represented the will of the people. You probably can hear a little bit of Hegel there. Um, but uh, so these were some of the, the, some of the thinking that was, was prevalent. Um, and this dovetailed quite closely with also the Fenneman movement, which was an, a nationalist um, movement 
Tekla whole team was one of the leaders of it. Um, and this, this Fennelman movement was promoting um, the Finnish language and culture. Uh, it was initially coalesced around the Finnish party, which then split into the old Finnish party and the young Finnish party, which Tekla whole team was um, the leader, I'd said, formed um, in the end of the 19th century. And so the majority of, and just to so that you know, the majority of Finns, 85% spoke Finnish, but the Swedish elite and the government officials spoke Swedish. And so this movement was to promote the Swinish, Finnish language and the, the, the Finnish culture. Um, the liberal movement was more associated with the Swedish speakers, and they didn't oppose the cultural goals of the Fennoman movement, but they did oppose the, the idea of a monolingual Finnish culture. Um, anyway, a lot, of these, a lot of these differences all kind of went away then with the, with the 1905 revolution, which, as I said, brought people together. And then finally, you have the, the uh, international women's suffrage movement, which Finnish women were very much a part of. Here was Alexandra von Grippenberg, who was, uh, Grippenberry, who was led this Finnish Women's Association uh, and was very active in say, the Women's Congress in, in, in D.C. in 80, 1888. Um, that aspect, that kind of cultural diffusion going on, but Finland was actually a big part of promoting, because <laughs> they were the first, to, and so they were, you know, very much part promoting women's um, right to vote in Europe and, and speaking about it. Uh, but you also had um, kind of an awareness of these of this international factor in the conversations that. Hultin had with the Russian leader, because she was talking to everybody, she was talking to, and she was talking to the Russian leaders, um, and there was a visit then by August Langhoff, the, the Secretary of State from Russia at one point, and she made an appointment right away with him, couldn't miss that, that opportunity, uh, and so she went with another suffragist, Emma Saltzman, and wanted to make sure that they were going to, this was going to go to the Tsar, and the Tsar was going to, you know, pass this, make, approve this right to vote, and so she went to lobby him, and uh, so Langhoff assured them, quote, I have long considered women's aspiration to be justified. I believe that I will accurately present and support the Senate's proposal now that both the Parliamentary Reform Committee and the Senate have made the same proposal. I've tried to familiarize myself with the question and promise to do my best on the points of um, this reform in my presentation to the Tsar. Then he asked the women, which aspects would you like me to emphasize? Hultin pointed out, quote, use the right to vote would broaden women's horizons and strengthen their sense of responsibility. Then Langhoff says, yes, it would strengthen their sense of responsibility, he repeats after her. Quote, this is the most important basis for advocating reform. Women do not yet have the right to vote in any other European country, but even the greater honor will come to our own country if it takes the first step. And then the other, Emma Salzman, who was, who was with Hultin, said, Quote, this is a crucial moment in the women's suffrage in other countries, so it's only a matter of time that it will be implemented elsewhere. So you can see that the awareness of this international dimension, that it's going to come anyway, it's inevitable, so let us be the first. Okay, so just to kind of wrap things up a little bit here. So what I've tried to argue is that, that it's these structural changes of war and revolution that precipitated these reforms. That they're quite closely knit to, to the events that took place and that you had also these individual action or con you know, contingent action that set in motion a series of cascading events. These contingent conversations were the product of um, the coincident, coincidental employment of whole team by Mechelin, 
Um, but it took place in this broader context that was ripe for reform. So it's, you know, it's not all about agency, it's not all about structure. People, people make things, people you know, make the cogs of the wheel <laughs> turn. Um, and the, the background was this early education of girls. It was the, this weak public-private divide that we saw, that we have in the US or that we saw in Britain. Um, we didn't have it in Finland. Um, part of it was tied to their communitarian ideology, um, somewhat to the, the Fetterman nationalist impulse at the time, and uh, the fact that women already were involved in politics. They were involved in civil society. They were playing leadership roles. It wasn't something foreign. It was something that women, it, it didn't make sense not to include them, let's put it that way. So I will leave it at that, and I look forward to your comments and, and questions.